Acts chapter 19. Turn there in your Bible if you brought one. How many of you read Acts chapter 19 this week and said, what in the world is JR going to say about Acts chapter 19? None of you? A few of you. Wow, this stuff was, uh, this is a wild chapter. Well, we're going to go through it today and talk about a few of the components, uh, stories that we see in Acts chapter 19. I want to first talk to you about uh, what's going on here, some context. I want to talk to you about, uh, well, this chapter 19, it, it covers about two years. So a long period of time goes by in this one chapter. I don't know if you caught that while you were reading. Significant amount of time went by. They're in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is in Asia Minor. It's in modern-day Turkey. Ruins are still there. You can go visit it today, although the city's been abandoned. It existed probably about a 1,000 years before this story. It was a major center of the Greek world. It was a major center for... um, arts and magic. It was a center of worship for Artemis, who was one of the Greek goddesses who we learned a little bit about uh, through this story in Acts. Uh, It had been around a long time. There are legends about Ephesus that one of the legends is that, you know, in Greek mythology, there's the Amazons. How many of you have heard of the Amazons? Yeah, that all-female tribe. These ladies were scary. Well, supposedly, uh, one of their queens, Ephesia, was part of the Amazon tribe, and that's where uh, the name of Ephesus came from, possibly. That may have led to why there was Artemis worship in this city uh, where Paul finds himself. Um, It was a major place of trade. It was huge. It was a big city, uh, one of the most important places. Some of the church fathers in, in history, like Tertullian and Justin Martyr and others, claimed that John the Apostle lived there. Supposedly his grave is still there. So John, where we get the book of John, one of the apostles, uh, supposedly is buried there. They believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, ended up there in the long run. Is that provable? I I don't necessarily know. But in terms of history, that's what they believe. When the persecutions broke out in Jerusalem and the Christians fled, they believed that Mary was in Ephesus with John. Uh, We don't know for sure if that's true, but within the first couple hundred years after uh, the birth of the church, some of these um, these uh, these guys were mentioning this in their writings. What's interesting is it's, there's a harbor there, and, a, and, a, and the river is flowing out into the harbor, and that's why it was a major place of trade, because the ships could come in. But the harbor was filling with silt from the river, and so the harbor was slowly getting destroyed over time, and it's part of why it was eventually abandoned completely, plus lots of wars. You know that part of the world has been war-torn since it seems like the beginning of time and continues to be to this day, and so cities are changing hands and those kind of things. But it's important to understand this context of what Ephesus was when Paul gets there, because it, it becomes a significant center for the, for the birth of Christianity, for the extension of Christianity to the known world at the time. It becomes a hotbed. It becomes um, really Paul's center that he works from for quite a while. And a lot of people that teach about how the church got started and what the different churches were like look to Ephesus a lot as an example of what, what was it like for the church in Ephesus. We have a lot of information about that, and it helps us understand the mission of the church. So you had, these, you had a center in Jerusalem, you had a center in Antioch, and you have a center in Ephesus, these three main places where the gospel is really flowing from to the known world. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 19. 
There's a lot to talk about in this chapter, and obviously we can't cover it all today, but I feel like I would probably not be doing due diligence if I skip uh, the first few verses of the chapter because it's such a controversial passage in modern times. And I'm I'm just going to try and take a few minutes, and I'm probably not going to do justice, uh, but I want to pick up the story uh, in Acts chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while... Apollos was in Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one that was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. I want to go back to Acts chapter 1 and remind you of what Jesus said when he ascended into heaven. He said, when you are clothed, wait until you are clothed with power from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Really, this is a thesis statement for the entire writing of Luke in the book of Acts. Is there waiting for this power, and then we see repeatedly throughout the stories in Acts, the power of God through the Holy Spirit coming upon the people and empowering them to preach the gospel to reach people to see signs and wonders all of these things that are going on in the early church to get it started now the reason this particular we saw where in jerusalem the holy spirit's poured out on the original disciples we see in samaria that they become filled with the spirit when john and peter come down we we read in the story of cornelius now that the gentiles then are being filled with the power of the holy spirit and now we have this unique situation in ephesus where paul comes in and he finds these disciples And he asks them about the Holy Spirit, and they don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the complete gospel of Jesus. And so he finishes teaching them, he baptizes them, and they're filled with the Spirit again. The reason this becomes controversial is you understand that today, there are many branches of Christianity that do not believe that the Holy Spirit comes in any sort of experience other than salvation. It's very much connected to what we call cessationist doctrine. The idea that the power of the Holy Spirit stopped working with the uh, end of the first century apostles. And that the Holy Spirit is something that comes at salvation and that's it. But then we read some of, then there's the other side of the equation uh, where we, this is what we believe, we're continuationists. We believe that the power of the Holy Spirit has continued and that signs and wonders are still possible today, that God speaks to his people, that, that the Holy Spirit is leading us and empowering us. And it, it's become a major controversy within the church. And a lot of it centers around this particular passage. And I want to just make a couple of points about it. I think, first of all, that when you try to read a passage of scripture having already believed something, it becomes very hard to be objective. It becomes very difficult to look at a passage and simply read it for what it says. And I think it's so important that when we're reading the scripture, we're not reading it with personal agendas. God gave us this text for us to learn. I believe that the Bible we have today is the Bible God meant to have for us. 
Okay, whatever you believe about what was written when and by who and which parts of it are more like parables and which part are actual factual information, whatever you believe about that, at least believe this, that the Bible we have today is the Bible that God wanted us to have. It began with him writing the word. Moses said it was written with the finger of God on the Ten Commandments. And ever since, God has been dictating to mankind through his word. And so when we read a passage like this, We need to read it objectively. The other thing is this. We have, we've we've had the privilege of Christianity being in existence for 2,000 years. Do you think that comes with some filters? Yes, not. It comes with filters. It comes with systems of thinking. You know, when we talk about getting somebody saved, right? And and we, 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 that's work, you know, we want people to come to the salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ, but after 2,000 years, we've really put a very firm framework around what we think that is. And sometimes we need to take our, what's the word I'm looking for? Assumptions. We need to take our assumptions and take them back to the Bible and go, does this line up? Is, is all this filters I've put on, all this structure I've put in my mind about who God is and how salvation works and how the Holy Spirit works and what church is supposed to be like and what my spouse is supposed to be like and what the whole world is supposed to be like and what the United States is supposed to be and what my eschatology, all these assumptions that we operate with, we got to go back to the Bible and go, is that really what it teaches? Now, in this particular case, and I think this is true in, in a lot of cases in the Bible, God doesn't give us these things, all these things so that we can formulate these perfect formulas to apply to every bit of doctrine. Okay, it's not, God didn't write all this so we could like distill it down to a little simple equation. It's so that we know the person of God. And I think there's a lot of flexibility within these things. I, I said this last week to you, is being right always the most important thing? And it's a difficult question to answer. Because there's nuance in the kingdom. There's nuance in your life. There's, there's, you are in different places along the journey. God's going to apply things a little bit differently. I, there's foundational concrete truth, absolutely. And we need to always be searching for that. But we need to be really careful when we try to just get to this point where we go, this is absolutely what this means completely every time, all the time. And I think we make a mistake when we read the Bible that way. And I think this passage is no exception. Okay, I'm just going to talk really briefly, and hopefully you take the time later, if you're curious about these things, to dive into them firmly. First of all, these guys were disciples. What does that mean? It, to some extent, they were believers. Paul understands that they believed, and Paul understands that they're disciples. Now, you could say, well, maybe there's some trickery going on with the Greek here. The word used for disciples, Luke uses 30 times. Every single time it's for a follower of Christ. Is it possible that this is not what he meant? It's possible, but it seems highly unlikely. Go back to Apollos, one chapter before. We read about Apollos, right? He, he was... Th- Here's these characteristics that it said about him. He was eloquent. He was competent in the scriptures. He was instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit. These are all things we see about Apollos. Now, doesn't that lead you to believe that Apollos has some kind of connection to God? If he's well instructed in the way of the Lord, and he's competent with the scriptures, and they're working with him, and yet Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside and explain it to him more accurately. 
Apollos didn't have the whole picture for some reason. We don't know what it is. Perhaps this is what it was. Because remember, John the Baptist comes around and he's preaching that the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get your heart ready. Get baptized in this water with John as a baptism of repentance. Turning around, changing your mind, going another direction. And that message went out into the world. And some of these people are taught this and they don't ever realize what has happened in Jerusalem with Jesus. They don't have the whole story yet. Keep in mind, this just happened. It's just starting to spread. There's just starting to come to an understanding of what this all means. So there's a lot of partial information out there. So the argument becomes, are these guys really followers of Christ or not? Well, they were prepared for it, for sure. We want to do this. Are they saved? I'm like, wow, you're going to open a can of worms now. Are they saved? We're taking our modern vernacular and applying it to the situation and trying to make it fit a mold. I don't know. Nobody knows exactly what these guys believed. Luke calls them disciples. Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we didn't even know there's a Holy Spirit. Paul's like, let me tell you about Jesus, what he did. Died on the cross, resurrected so the power of the Holy Spirit could come. Let's get baptized in the name of Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what they did. So, I don't want to say much more about that. There's major controversies surrounding the power of the Holy Spirit. What we believe and teach, and what I encourage people, is that I don't really think the Bible gives us these perfect formulas about getting filled with the Spirit, or even getting saved. I mean, is there a formula in the Bible about getting saved? It has to do with belief and faith, something none of us can check a box about. It's just something in the heart, and it's a journey. And it's incomplete until you get your resurrected body someday, which you don't presently have, as far as I can tell. And so we can't just put it in this nice little neat box. And I think the Holy Spirit is like that. I think the point is this. God wants you to be filled with his spirit. And you go, well, I got saved, so I don't need, I don't need to address that issue ever again for the rest of my life. I'm sorry, but I don't read that in the scriptures. I see these people being filled with the Spirit constantly. I see them wrestling with how the Spirit is leading them, going from place to place and making decision after decision. There's a relationship with the Holy Spirit that is a part of the New Testament. You can't read the New Testament cover to cover and go, the Holy Spirit's not a part of my life except for the moment of salvation. I just don't see that. And so we don't teach that. We believe the gifts are still a part of the church. We believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is still active amongst us. How does that work itself out? That's where the challenges come in. The Bible gives us lots of instruction. I think we just need to be careful that we don't just get stuck in an assumption and a framework of thinking that we're inflexible and unwilling to learn something new. I think we need to be a people that's flexible. Because when we, we get to the point where we're being right is the most important thing, then we never learn anything new because we'll have to admit we were wrong. Or something was off a little bit. And nobody wants to admit they're wrong because being right's the most important thing, right? Unless you've been married for five minutes. <laughs> so, but we have to stop and go, God, what are you trying to show me? Maybe my original understanding of this, hey, I grew up in a world where, you know, being baptized in the Holy Spirit meant that people laid hands on you until you prayed in tongues. And if you didn't pray in tongues, you didn't have the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that anymore. But it's what I grew up with. And I still think there's a lot of truth in there, but it's not necessarily the whole truth because we are learning and growing together as God builds his church. And so I guess what am I trying to say about this? I believe in the, in, in the filling of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, 
but I don't think there's perfect formulation in every circumstance about how this works. Just like some of you have no idea when you were actually saved, but you know that you are. Some of you don't know the moment the Holy Spirit really moved in power, or the Holy Spirit continues to move in power in your life. I I think there's some nuance that we need to be okay with in some of these things. Okay, but I want to move on to the rest of the story. Because this is really what I wanted to talk about today more than anything. I want to read this story. Actually, last week, I was sort of grieving. I'm like, man, I wish I could preach Acts 19. Why didn't I schedule myself for Acts 19? I love the stories in Acts 19. It's awesome. And I'm kind of, like, for two or three weeks, I'm thinking this. And then I finally looked at the schedule, and guess who is actually preaching Acts 19? Oh, it's me. And so I was thankful. And then I dove into it, and like, wait a minute. Not sure I want to preach this. I'm going to need like four hours. This stuff is so good. But we're going to distill it down to a few things. I want to read the story of the sons of Sceva or Siva, however you pronounce it. Beginning in verse 11 of Acts 19. And God, who? God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay, I, I don't know if there are such things as not extraordinary miracles. Because by definition, it seems like miracles are extraordinary, and they are. But it seems like there's an exceptional degree of this going on in Ephesus. In some of the places we go, we don't necessarily see a lot of this. But in Ephesus, we see a lot of it. There is significant pouring out of the power of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons had touched his skin, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Paul was not a televangelist. This was real. And and, and it starts to boggle your mind. You just start to go, what kind of principles are at work here that a piece of cloth could carry power from a person to a situation and a demon or a disease is going to respond to it? Pretty soon the fabric of your brain starts unraveling. It's intense. It's, It's amazing what's going on. But then we learn a lot as we read further in. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. This could be the most complicated verse I've ever read in the Bible. Full of words that need to be discussed. Okay, let's talk about the word itinerant and what that means and why it got translated to that in the English Um, The idea of itinerant is just traveling. There were traveling ministries back in the day. These these Jewish exorcists are traveling from town to town. (laughs) Evil spirits are an issue. And they're traveling from town to town. They're Jews. And they're exorcising. Just like the the movie The Exorcist, which hopefully none of you have seen. (laughs) I actually haven't because I'm too scared. They're exorcising demons. They're commanding them, they're binding them by oath, is what this exorcism means. And they're invoking the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to invoke? They're, they're calling upon it. You know, if we were to use it in a, like legal terms, maybe, maybe Mr. Swanson, our elder, who's also an attorney, could explain this better to me, you. But the idea that we, you know, you could invoke the First Amendment freedom of speech in your defense. I I call upon this authoritative thing. I'm reaching out and grabbing it and making it a part of my argument. So they're invoking the name of the Lord Jesus 
over these people that are struggling with evil spirits and saying, I adjure you, I bind you, I make you swear under oath by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, I have to rabbit trail a little bit here, maybe to give some context or more of an understanding of what goes on um, in, in the world of magic. So Ephesus is a center for magic. Now, when we think of magic, you, you think of like Disney or something goofy like that. But magic really, we saw this already a couple of weeks ago with the young lady that has the spirit of divination. She has the ability to contact the spirit realm, to speak to the dead or fortune tell in some capacity. She's obviously going beyond the natural in her ability. And Paul rebukes that ability because it's a spiritual being that has a foothold in her life. And the spiritual, the demon comes out of her and she can no longer perform this power. And and so, wow, it just starts to raise questions like, what does this mean? Is this stuff real? How does it work? And and we begin to have to dive into an understanding. So what goes on in, in, you've heard the word enchant, uh, enchanted. In fact, what's what's that? Isn't there a Disney show? Encanto, is that enchanted? Is that what that means in Spanish? Oh, there's a movie enchanted? Okay. Anyway, part of this is what they would do in in incantations and and enchantment. It it really has its root in that word chant. And what happens is they will repeat words over and over and over, calling upon a spiritual power, calling upon a power other than God, which I'll get into this in a minute. And in the same way, exorcism often has the same kind of thing. Even, even in the Christian world where the repetition of phrases or sayings calling upon the name of Jesus would actually have power in situations and bring the power of God into the situation. So they're trying to call upon this power of Jesus in order to get rid of this demon because they're seeing this work with significant results from Paul. Make sense? So they're in town. They're, some people claim these guys are charlatans. They're just money makers. They just travel from town to town ripping people off. And there may be some elements of that that are true. Uh, Clearly, they're not Christians necessarily. They're of the Jewish race, probably some background in Jewish faith. Another thing you may not realize is out of the Jewish faith, a lot of mysticism rose. A lot of magic is done out of basing itself in Judaism, but then going off in these other directions, calling upon supernatural power other than God in order to make things happen in the natural realm. Now, you may be saying, JR, you are off your rocker. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches, okay? And I believe it. I believe that there's a supernatural realm. I believe in forces of good and evil. I believe the Bible is very clear in teaching those things. And I think we're actually uh, worse off in this day and age to pretend it doesn't exist. I think one of the greatest schemes of our enemy has been through rationalism and science to push us to a place of deciding that there's no such thing as a spiritual realm. There's no Satan. There's no sp- not, none of that. And I think it's a great mistake because that is not at all what the Bible teaches. But rather than getting weirded out and ignoring it or getting fearful and running away with it, we need to press into it so that we actually have a reasonable understanding of what really is going on here. Okay, let's continue with the story. So their chances are what they're doing. Actually, I want to say something else too. I mean, you've you read in like the fantasy novels and stuff, these wizards, they'd have their books of incantations, books of their magic spells, things like that. This is a, re- this has its sort it has historically accurate um, reasoning behind that. 
Because these guys that would work in supernatural things, they would, they would dig until they find things that actually work. Where they really are invoking a power in the supernatural realm into their current reality. And making things happen. Because we, we do understand that there are principalities and powers and rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those things are real. And we're going to dive into some examples of that in a minute. But let's finish this story. So these priests are in the name of Jesus, whom Paul is proclaiming or preaching, come out of him, come out of him. Well, the demon speaks through the man and says this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, who are you? Ooh, time for some humble pie. Now, well, let's go to the next verse. What do, we, what do we learn, first of all, from this? The supernatural entities, whatever they are. I, I would encourage you to stop thinking about demons like little guys with tails and pitchforks that run around trying to con- convince the, on your shoulder like this. And that you have an, We've got to stop thinking about it like that. There's some elements of truth to that. But these are spiritual beings. They don't have bodies They govern things. There's a governing kind of authority they have in the world and over places and people and things like that. And at times, end up with significant authority in people's life. When you're opening yourself up to that realm, saying, hey, by the power of this particular spirit, make this happen. You're opening yourself up to that authority. That You're authorizing a supernatural entity to take ground in your life. And people become possessed. This demon, a spiritual being, takes over this man's body to such an extent that he is able to use him to speak. That's profound. The demon speaks through the man. Notice it doesn't say the man spoke. The evil spirit answered through the man. These are the kind of things that we often want to just ignore in the Bible because we don't have answers for. There are answers. Let's dig in and see what we can get to today. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all. Mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounding. Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, who are you? So talk about a humiliating experience. Not only did you just get confronted by a spiritual power, that physically beat you, ripped your clothes off, and sent you outside without them on. That had to be, I mean, you know, you know your worst nightmares, like you're back in high school, and you're sitting in your desk, and you're like, wait, I forgot to put on clothes today. How embarrassing that kind of thought is. That happened to these guys. So what are we learning? They did not have authority over this spirit. They did not have the power to deal with this supernatural entity. Now, I think we can see reasonably that these guys are not believers. They're not Christians. They're not carrying that authority of Christ. But they try and invoke it, and they suddenly get themselves in an entanglement that they can't deal with. What do we learn? Besides just the the phenomenon of, of demonic power working through a man, both physically... Hey, you've heard of this. People doing superhuman feats in extreme moments. Uh, When I was a kid, I remember a story of a man. He beat up like eight cops trying to arrest him. I think the guy had something else going on. Okay? 
Uh, I think that when we, well, anyway, the suit, the, this stuff can happen where our physical realm and the laws of nature bend under the weight of the supernatural. And there's, there's something to that. So this became known, beginning in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They heard this story and they go, this is real power. We respect this. There's a, there's a healthy sense of the fear here. Fear and respect and awe, if you will, that they have for Jesus. Because, not because Jesus cast this demon out, but the fact that this demon responded in this way. And saying, yeah, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is. I don't know you. You have no authority here. You have no right or claim over me. I'm holding this ground. Because you don't really carry that authority of Jesus with you. You aren't Paul. And I think we learn a lesson here about authorization. God gave mankind in general some authority in the world. Subdue the earth. Multiply. Rule over it. All these things. Be fruitful. God authorized us for certain things. But then as individuals, we're authorized in certain ways. Because I have been appointed to the position of a leader of a church, I'm authorized in certain ways. If you are, whatever your role is in your job, your boss maybe authorized you to do this, but you're not authorized to do that. You, you don't have that with you. We all have different gifts. We all have different talents. We've been equipped in different ways by God. And I think it's a lesson for us to understand and to consider where does our authority lie? Now, we can overreact or underreact to this situation. I think a lot of times we would have the tendency to underreact or underestimate ourselves. Maybe that's a better way to say it. It's like, I don't have authority to that. So pretty soon we're saying, I don't have authority for that, so I don't do anything. I excuse myself from all responsibility and doing anything in the world because... I just don't have the authority. God didn't give it to me. Well, the Bible teaches us we do have a lot of authority in a lot of different ways. But then there are other things. I, I remember a situation where I had a young man tell me he was going to climb Mount Helena and bind Satan over the county and the valley and everything else. And I went, dude, you need to chillax. <laughs> I understand that, that we need to have faith, and, and we're growing in that faith, and we're engaged in a supernatural battle, but you are not the answer for all time to deal with Satan. Be careful what you start messing with. And, and I think there's, a, there's something not to promote fear and reservation, but just wisdom. Wisdom in how we handle these things. I think that, uh, yeah, there's lots of stories we could tell and things like that. And because this, because this happened and the people in Ephesus are amazed... Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They're talking about magic arts. And the number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 50,000 days wages. That'll cost you days wages. 50,000 days. How many years is that? I didn't do the math. I should have. It's a lot of money. There's great value here. It, it was thought that 
If you were a ma- worked magic arts and you, you're calling on the power of some demonic power, like, again, they're not thinking of these demonic powers like you think of a little demon with a pitchfork, okay? They're thinking of just a spiritual being with authority and power, which is really probably more accurate. And when they found something that worked, it, they had to keep it a secret. They believed that if the secret were made known, the power of the incantation would be lost. So when they come with these books and they're exposing all this stuff, they're divulging all this power. They're getting rid of all the stuff. They burn it all. This is a tremendous demonstration of the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus in Ephesus. I want to read Ephesians chapter... Ephesians... Where do we get the book of Ephesians? A letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Because the city of Ephesus deals heavily in the supernatural, we find a lot of instruction from Paul to the Ephesians later in his letter to the Ephesians. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I didn't get any armor. I don't even have a sword. Nobody hooked me up with that. What are we talking about? We're not talking about literal things. We're not talking about literal armor. Just in case anyone was confused and getting their hopes up. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, look at these words, rulers, against the authorities. I know what you're thinking. Resist authority, right? We're going to go out and riot after this, right? No. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So you can look at the person next to you and think, they're not my enemy. This isn't really where the war is. This isn't really what this is about. What this really is about is an authoritative rule of evil in the world. See, when we read the Bible, we understand that there are spiritual forces that have actual authority, authorization to rule over nations and people groups. We read about this in the book of Daniel. And there's lots of other places, and I wish I had days to unpack this with you, but I don't. I just want to make it really clear that there is a supernatural realm, and in that supernatural realm, there are governing powers Just like you think of our government, we have a president, we have a senate, we have these positions of authority in our cities and nations, and in a similar way, that's what it's like in the supernatural realm. There are governing spiritual authorities and multiple layers of authority, and sometimes those authorities even rival against one another and battle one another. They're broken. They're part of the fallen creation. Remember, we understand that all of these spiritual beings, not all of them, a portion of the spiritual beings that God created fell from glory. They rebelled against him. The Bible calls Satan the prince of this world. What do we understand? That in the supernatural realm, evil governing power took over the world and governs it. Our war is with that. Jesus said, he preached the message, the kingdom of God is at hand. A new authority is coming. And it's not authority just over a particular nation or people group. It's in every nation and every tongue and every tribe where he has authority. He he broke the rules. He's breaking the system. He's bringing a new creation into the world through what he did on the cross. 
I'm saying a lot in a short amount of time, but I hope to provoke you to dig deeper into these things to understand them. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, governing spiritual authorities. I want to wrap up with this so that I can bring this to something practical for all of us as we move forward with our lives. First of all is this, to understand that this unseen realm that we're talking about does not factor into our worldview enough. This unseen realm is not factoring into our worldview enough. We need to wrestle with what the truth of the supernatural realm is and what that means for Christians. Because we're actually dealing with it heavily today and acting like it's not there. And that's a problem. The second thing is this. When, When you pray, this is why your prayer is powerful. You're not just going to God to submit a ticket. Here, punch my ticket. Rubber stamp this for approval, would you? You're doing heavy lifting in the spirit realm. When, when Paul is there preaching, he, in the spirit, what he's doing is he's pushing off this governing authority in Ephesus. He's pushing off this spiritual power by preaching the gospel and teaching the truth and signs and wonders and all of these things. He's doing some heavy lifting in the spirit to bring the authority of God into the situation. When you pray, you are shifting and moving things in the spirit. When you pray for healing, yeah, the end result is that you want the healing. But what does it take to get healing? You have to remove the laws of nature, the result of this fallen creation. You have to move things in the spirit, so to speak. So asking God to change what's going on in the natural and supernatural realm, intervening on your behalf. The point is this, your prayer matters. Your prayer matters. It's not just conversation with God. It's spiritual warfare. You're speaking something into a spirit realm, and we don't understand how it works and why it works and all those things, but you're shifting things in the spirit. That's why when you pray, it matters. That's why when we say, in the name of Jesus, they aren't just superstitious magic words on the end of the sentence that we just tack on so that they, so that maybe God will hear my prayer if I say, in the name of Jesus. Understand what in the name of Jesus really, really means. It means in that authority, in that character, in that representation. I am one of his. In his name, I'm praying. I am one of the children. I'm a servant of the Most High. How many times do we see the demons in the Bible go crying out, I know who you are, Jesus. Have you come to torture us? How about the girl with the spirit? These guys are servants of the most high God. These demons are crying out. They're, they're submitted to this. When we pray, we're, we're pushing something into that realm. It's more than just submitting a request to God or picking up a phone and going, hey, God, I need some help. What you're actually saying is, God, I need you to do something in the natural and supernatural. I need you to bring your authority into a situation where otherwise all there is is evil authority and change the game. Help me. And we have that. There's so much more I could say about this. But I'm out of time for today. But I hope that you will dive further into this and wrestle with these issues. Would you stand, please? On another note, I want to mention our good buddy, Corn Canny. Those of you that know Corn, he is headed off to be a part of our Regions Beyond Internship program in Missoula for the year. And these young people go and they serve in another church uh, for, I don't know, anywhere from six months to a year. They 
do some studying and learning together. They do a lot of work for the church. Uh, I was able to participate this year in some of the online classes with some of the, the interns. Corin's going to be leaving in a little over a week. We're going to pray for him today. So those of you that want to pray, lay hands on Corn and pray for him and bless him, you're going to meet right over here after the service. Please be sure and do that. If you would like to receive prayer for anything else, please come see our prayer team on my left over here. They would love to pray with you uh, about these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us so many things. God, we're thankful that when you ascended into heaven, you said this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. And we carry that authority as your kingdom is being established all over the world. Your word says that um, your return isn't going to happen until the gospel is preached to all nations, that that authority is embraced by people of every tribe and every tongue. And God, we look forward to that. But for now, Lord, we pray that you would help us in that mission of bringing that transformational, that loving power into other people's lives and into our communities. God, I pray for each one here. That there's some difficult things that we talked about today. And God, we, we know we don't have an enemy that sleeps, but we have an enemy that looks to make trouble in our lives. And God, we, we know that you are over all those things when it comes to your children. Father, I pray you just lead us in wisdom and how to learn and navigate and talk about those things, how to pray about those things. In Jesus' name, amen.